0: The Middle East, more than 450 million people. Arabs, Egyptians, Jews, Greeks, to name just a few. Lots of oil, lots of trouble, but not much hope. Rex Rogers has just returned from a trip to the Middle East and North Africa regions, and boy, has he got some stories. You don't want to miss one of them. And they're just ahead here on The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager saying welcome. You ever wonder what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Israel is certainly a part of that. Why is this so important though? And what does it mean for you? That's
1: right, John, and our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores First Thessalonians four and five, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more here about Life in Messiah's 135 year history
0: of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, let's turn our attention now toward current events. This is the first of four segments on the broadcast, and current events is what we do right now. Hezbollah's general secretary has threatened to use force to keep Israel from taking natural gas out of its latest offshore field. With production scheduled to begin in September, how serious is this threat, Charlie, and how will Israel likely respond?
1: Well, you know, John, Hezbollah has been rattling its saber for some time, and this threat was taken seriously. Their Secretary General initially said if Israel begins extracting natural gas from the new field, Hezbollah will attack. In response, Israel raised its level of alert at the site, which is 50 miles off the coast, just west of the border between the two countries. Israel also delivered a warning to Hezbollah through diplomatic channels, saying any action taken against the gas field will bring a strong response. The good news is that it looks like earlier this week the different sides took a step back from these threats of confrontation. And that's good, with the field set to open next month. The U.S. continued its mediation efforts between Lebanon and Israel to resolve their maritime dispute. Lebanon's foreign minister said the talks were advancing and that he was optimistic about reaching an agreement. Apparently, the proposed agreement includes Lebanon withdrawing any claims to the new field, but gaining access to a different area that has gas deposits. Now, even if Israel and Lebanon do reach an agreement, that doesn't necessarily mean Hezbollah will accept it. However, their options are limited. If they simply back down, they lose face. But if they launch an attack, Israel will respond militarily. One bit of good news was a statement from Nasrallah, uh, the general secretary, that he was now leaning away from fighting a war against Israel over gas. Uh, Hopefully, this agreement will be finalized and accepted by all parties because a war would prove costly for all sides.
0: Well, in addition to a potential conflict with Hezbollah, Israel is also facing threats from Iran, from Hamas, and even Russia. How do these all play into Israel's security concerns? Each one is significant and in its own
1: unique way. Iran's threat, that's twofold. They continue to try to supply Hezbollah with more accurate missiles, while Israel continues to launch strikes in Syria to try to stop them. Iran's second threat is its nuclear program. The general belief now is that Iran could produce a nuclear device in a matter of weeks should it decide to take the final step. That doesn't mean they have the means to deliver a nuclear weapon. Some believe it could still take Iran another decade to develop the military capability to launch a nuclear strike against Israel. Israel is continuing efforts to hinder Iran's progress on their nuclear and missile programs. Several recent assassinations within Iran were likely undertaken by Israel. Now, switching from Iran to Hamas, Hamas has been relatively quiet since last spring's war with Israel, but Israel is concerned they might join Hezbollah in any future conflict. And Israel's recent arrest of an Islamic Jihad operative in the West Bank has also ratcheted up the tension with Hamas. As a warning, Israel publicized a list of Hamas underground military sites located near schools, mosques, and hospitals in Gaza. Now, part of the reason for sharing the information with the press is to provide justification should any future attack be needed against those sites. Mm -hmm. But Israel also wanted Hamas to know that Israel has detailed information on their infrastructure, which they'll destroy if Hamas starts something. Finally, Israel is also concerned about Russia. Israeli Defense Secretary Gantz acknowledged that Russia had fired S-300 missiles at Israeli warplanes over Syria back in May. He described it as a one-off event that hasn't been repeated, but it was likely intended as a warning from Russia. The concern is that the conflict with Hezbollah and Iran continues to spill over into Syria, and with Israel providing some assistance to Ukraine, Russia could look for ways to make it difficult for Israel to launch those attacks. These anti-aircraft missile systems could certainly complicate things for Israel in Syria and in Lebanon, and that's something Israel would like to avoid.
0: Well, if you've listened so far, you're aware that the issues of the Middle East are very, very complex. That's why we're grateful to have Dr. Charlie Dyer kind of helping us work through a list of current events stories every single week on this program we call The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, it's just three months until Israel's next election with the deadline for each party to submit its list of candidates about a month away. How is the campaign shaping up?
1: Yeah, you know, their campaign makes us long for our days of simple two-party systems. There have been some interesting developments. Uh, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's Yamina party well, it had all been but written off, with polls projecting it would fall below the electoral threshold needed to make it into the Knesset. But last week, current Yamina party head Ayelet Shaked announced plans to unite with another small party. The new party will be called Haruach Hatzionit which means the Zionist spirit. Uh, the party's positioning itself as a right-wing but not ultra-religious party with a commitment to broad, stable government. Polls taken immediately after the announcement show the new party receiving enough votes to make it into the Knesset with four seats. The real question, though, is whether those numbers will hold up through the next few months or slip back down. Uh, right now, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party is projected to receive the largest number of seats in the Knesset, about 35. Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid party is projected to come in second with 23 seats, and the Blue and White New Hope joint ticket is going to come in third with about 11 seats. Now, some pundits are trying to pair up the pro and anti-Netanyahu coalition, and uh, they're predicting, based on the, the last government, another hung parliament with 57 to 59 seats for Netanyahu's coalition and 55 to 57 for the Lapid-Gantz-Yamina coalition. The remaining six seats are the Arab joint list, which really don't join with either of those two major groups. Uh, But the one variable everybody needs to watch closely is this new Zionist spirit party. Uh, Its two leaders were part of the last government, but the Yamina party was not comfortable being in a coalition with parties on the left or with the Islamic Ra'am party. If they make it into the Knesset and choose to side with Netanyahu, Uh, that could give him 61 or 62 seats, enough to form a government. Now, it's still a long way between now and November 1st, and a lot can happen between now and then. And the part those in the West don't quite understand is the real work that it takes uh, to form a government actually happens after the election, as these different party leaders try to cobble together their own version of a workable coalition. So there's a lot happening and a lot more that'll take place uh, in the coming days.
0: Charlie, in a sentence, do you think that we're moving toward better times or a continuation of the instability?
1: I think it's still going to be the instability. Uh, Really, what Israel wants, though it's not going to happen, is they would love to have a broad, relatively secular, conservative government. Uh, And the problem is that uh, that would require uh, Gantz and Lapid to join with Netanyahu. Uh, The problem is those three will just not get together.
0: And in a sentence, what do we know about Netanyahu's continuing legal issues?
1: Uh, They continue on. Uh, There have been some holes poked in the prosecution case, but the trial just continues churning along, and uh, he's not out of the woods yet. All
0: right. Well, when you think of a personal robotic assistant, what comes to mind? Maybe it's uh, Rosie from the Jetsons or R2-D2 and 3-CPO from Star Wars, or maybe it's something less dramatic like Amazon's Alexa or Apple's Surrey. But Intuition Robotics from Amazing Israel is hoping something else will soon come to mind. Uh, Charlie, I hate feeling uh, lost in space, so please tell us about their new robotic companion.
1: John, I like this story. This system is unlike any of those other systems. Now, It first doesn't look like a robot. It looks more like a mushroom-shaped lamp with a top that turns and bends. And it comes with a detachable tablet that can rest on the stand or be held in the user's hand. Uh, The name of the system is L-E-Q, that's E-L-L-I, capital Q, all run together, and it's designed for a very specific audience. Its purpose is to help an aging person who lives alone stay active, connected, and engaged. Loneliness and social isolation are difficult problems faced by seniors, and L-E-Q is designed to be an empathetic companion for seniors. Uh, The robotic device uses artificial intelligence to learn the routine of the senior and then to interact with the person. It offers access to news events and health information and sports, tells jokes and even Bible quotes to help connect with the individual. Hmm. Uh, It'll initiate conversation, and and over time, it'll build a relationship. It reminds the owner to eat and drink and stay hydrated and exercise. I wish this had been around for my mom before she passed away. It's the perfect companion for an elderly person living alone. Uh, In fact, this LAQ system might be just what the doctor ordered for individuals like that.
0: And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Coming up here on The Land and the Book, an update on the Middle East and North Africa regions as we hear from Rex Rogers, just ahead on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. What if you could take the history of Israel from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, say, and explain it in less than 15 minutes. Well, you'd have to move fast, cover lots of ground, and keep going. We're about to attempt just that. Might not be advised. It's all next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. This is our second segment out of four. I'm John Geiger, and before we take our whirlwind trip of the history of Israel, let's focus for a moment on outreach ideas for our Jewish friends. The key to reaching out more effectively and sharing Yeshua with your Jewish friends It's one word, relationship. Josh and Rochelle Norman are with Chosen People Ministries and here to expand that
2: thought. Josh? I think in any general sense, evangelism isn't just proclamation alone. It's in relationships. It's establishing a deep, honest relationship with somebody. Very rarely does somebody hear about Messiah Mm -hmm. and come to faith. Instead, it's through years of relationship, being patient with them. You know, few stories I've heard how people have seen the love in a believer— And that will bring them to the Messiah, especially with the Jewish person who might have some huge objections to why they don't believe in Jesus, and Yeshua. Over time, a relationship, a loving relationship will show them.
1: Especially with Jewish people. They're looking for that. There's so many obstacles that I think a lot of Christians get intimidated that maybe a Jewish person knows the Torah, the
2: law so perfectly. Don't think that way. Jewish people are looking just like everyone else.
0: In a previous conversation, Rochelle, you uh, more than hinted at the fact that there is a great number of Jewish people who have no notion or concept or interest in Messiah at all.
1: That's right. They're actually told growing up It's fine to be a Buddhist or to be atheist. Just don't believe in Yeshua, Jesus. This this is too far for us Jews. Um, Historically and various other theological implications is that it's either you're a Jew or a Christian. There is no in-between.
0: But in the end, it's a relationship that makes the big difference. That's what cuts through that layer. That's what you're saying,
3: Rochelle.
2: You're able to overcome many barriers time after time with a true relationship.
0: Overcoming barriers. Great tips from Josh and Rochelle Norman who are with Chosen People Ministries here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Paul Wagner is Professor of Old Testament Studies and Director of the Academic Graduate Studies Program at Gateway Seminary in Ontario, California. Along with Dr. Walter Kaiser, he has updated a history of Israel from the Bronze Age through the Jewish Wars. Good to have you with us on the land of the book, Paul.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, how do you tell the history of ancient Israel in just 710 pages? It had to be a struggle to know what to include or what to leave out.
3: Oh, yes. Because there's so much that's happening, it's, it's really hard to get it all in.
0: Yeah. But you had to use some kind of a grid. So what were some of the things that you thought through
3: as you decided this goes, this doesn't? I think the main thing I was working on is trying to figure out how do you give a good picture of what is happening in that time and trying to figure out, okay, what's going to be the most meaningful for a reader to understand what's happening in a specific period? And then how does the Bible fit into that? So my goal was to try to show how the Bible fit into history to make it come alive, really.
0: Before we challenge you to cram the history of Israel into 14 minutes, let me just say how much I appreciate the easy reading style here. It was more like uh, going through the book, a collection of fascinating articles than a stuffy old history book. So I really, really love that.
3: Thank you. One of the things I like to do is to put a lot of pictures in it so that when you hear like... Jericho. Well, if you know where it is, that helps a lot understand what Jericho is all about. Yeah.
0: The history of Israel in 15 minutes or less. That's our journey today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, our guest, Dr. Paul Wagner, who has co-written A History of Israel. Okay. Take us to a couple of important historical stops on the early part of the timeline. Your choice.
3: Okay. I would probably say about 1400 B.C., When Israel's coming out of Egypt and heading into the promised land, it's a crucial time for Israel because they've now left a land of slavery and now are becoming a nation under God to go into the land that He had promised them. Seems like to me that's probably one of the major elements in that early period.
0: And what's the next major turning point in Israel's history?
3: Oh, probably the kings. You know, when you get to. Saul and David and Solomon, those are going to be, I think, crucial elements of building the nation, especially under David, I think, because he's going to be the crucial person for the rest of the history.
0: You know, when we read Scripture, and you've referenced First and Second Kings, I, I often am intrigued with the phrase, and the rest of his reign, is it not recorded in the records? You know, various words for that annals. And I, I wonder, boy, how much more details would we see? How much more shock and awe might there be if we somehow had access to that information.
3: Yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) All those things we would know that we really don't know right now. And, you know, it talks about these books that were written, but we don't have them. So you always get to that part and wonder, oh man, what are we missing?
0: Now, for somebody who is not a Bible scholar, they're saying, okay, this sounds interesting. Do you use sources outside of Scripture itself? And do those sources validate the history that's in Scripture? What's your, what's your understanding, your assessment of that?
3: Oh, yeah. In my mind, getting some of those ancient sources to corroborate things that are said in Scripture is one of the most important things that I think you can do. That's why I tried to put pictures of these ancient sources that also talked about Israel or different kings or their interaction with Israel. All of those things, I think, make the text come alive.
0: From the Bronze Age through the start of the New Testament, we're trekking through a history of Israel with our guest, Paul Wagner, here on The Land and the Book. What do you see as a landmark moment in Israel's history that
3: many of us maybe minimize or just plain ignore? I think probably the division of the kingdom in 931. Seems like to me that now becomes almost a turning point in Israel's history. Because from then on, you've got this northern kingdom wandering away from God real quickly, and the southern kingdom kind of following them, but a little slower. But that division, I think, is a crucial time in Israel's history. Yeah,
0: and, and a sad time. You know, I'm intrigued with the fact, as I look at it, and, and correct me, you're the, uh, the uh, co-author of this book, that there's a very short period of time where there is, in fact, a unified kingdom. Most of Israel's history, uh, they're separate or, you know dispersed throughout other nations? Is is that a fair assessment?
3: Oh, yeah. Each of the kings, like Saul, lasts about 40 years, and David lasts about 40 years, and then Solomon lasts about 40 years. So that would be the time when it's united. So about 120 years, and then the rest of the time, they're pretty much divided.
0: We've referenced the fact that there are tons of charts and timelines and photos and illustrations. At a point, I I looked at all this stuff and it's so generously, you know, splashed across the pages. And I asked myself, how did you get access to this stuff? How did you get permission to use so many photos? It had to be a nightmare getting clearances and access to all of that.
3: It, It took me over a year to get all the access to all the pictures and things. But the Internet was extremely helpful. Wikipedia was very helpful. They have a massive material there's just some specific things you can't get. And so those ones are real harder and those take a lot longer to get.
0: Okay. What is our next stop on the timeline of ancient Israel's history? Uh, you've talked about the, the division of the kingdom as being significant. What's the next major stopping point or pausing point that we should just kind of say, hmm, for a moment?
3: I would think 701 when Sennacherib comes against Jerusalem Cause at that point, the Northern kingdom is pretty much gone. You know, 722, the Northern kingdom gets carried off into captivity. And then Judah's the only part of God's kingdom that's left. And you've got them now being taken over by, or, you know, at least being partially destroyed by a major nation, the Assyrians. The and at that point, when God steps in and wipes out 185,000 of his soldiers, it says, it had to be a, an amazing time in Israel's history. The sad thing is that Israel didn't get it. You would have thought at that point that yes. they would have turned back to God and, and said, oh, thank you for saving us and all that. They don't. It, it, it gives you a picture of just how wicked the nation was by that time.
0: Without trying to put words in your mouth, what kind of a parallel do you see between modern-day America and our increasing downward spiral morally, spiritually, and every other way, and Israel's timeline?
3: Oh, man. (laughs) You know what? I've always been amazed at how fast the nation can fall apart. And even in Israel's case, you know, in 100 years, they go from a fairly strong country to a weakling and then being carried off into captivity. So I guess that's what, in my mind, it doesn't take very long for a nation to fall. If it just starts going the wrong way, it just can happen very quickly. So I think that's probably the thing I would say.
0: We're talking, and at points trotting, with our guest Paul Wegner today on The Land and the Book. He's co-written A History of Israel. What do we get from having a big-picture view of Israel's history in a way that we don't really see when we're zoomed in up
3: close? You know, I think the thing that I would say is most amazing is that when you understand the history of Israel and then you read the Prophets, they make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. You know what they're talking about and why they're saying what they are saying. So I think even a big picture of the nation going downhill and then these prophets coming in to a certain period of time and talking about what they're doing wrong and all that and what God's going to do to them if they don't turn back to God. It is amazing. It, It just fits like a hand in the glove. And I think it really makes the text make a lot more sense.
0: Speak to the tendency in churches today to avoid much of the Old Testament. You know, our sermons are so often based in the New Testament. Uh, What does that say about us as a subculture? What does that say about our our biblical ignorance? Uh, What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I've spent about 30 years now teaching the Old Testament because I realized They don't know it. And -hmm. and my students need to know this stuff. I think what we lose is the foundation. You know, it's like building a house on the sand. We got the new Testament and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a great book and it tells us about salvation, but if we understood the roots and how the old Testament fits into the new Testament, it seems like you've got so much more depth. You understand why God sent Jesus at a certain time. You understand the sacrifices. Why mm-hmm. did Jesus have to die? You know, all of those things are foundations that we're missing, and, and I think it's sad. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: All right, let's go back to the timeline here. We have been appropriately sad to see Israel being carted off into foreign lands. What would be the next significant moment on the timeline?
3: Um, yeah, uh, once the northern kingdom is taken, then uh, about 150 years later, the southern kingdom also gets taken off into Babylon. I think the neat thing about that is that uh, I always tell my students this, is that it seems like it's kind of neat what God has done there. He can punish the people that deserve it the worst. Like the ones that go off into captivity are like the kings, the uh, rich people, uh, the leaders. All of those were the ones that led Israel down. And even the ones that had you know punished the poor people and all that, those rich people were carried off. And so it was interesting to me that God could punish those. And in actual fact, if you were a poor person in Israel in the captivity, you had it better off than ever because you were left in the land because uh, the Babylonians wanted you to continue to farm and do stuff like that. Well, you now had your land back. Mm -hmm. So God can punish those people that deserve it the worst. And I thought, well, that's amazing. That's quite an amazing God we have.
0: For sure. Hey, if you had it in your power to alter one mistake, one bad decision in Israel's history, what would you have them fix or do differently? You've got that whole timeline. What would you intervene on? What would you fix?
3: When King Ahaz, um, when God gives him the opportunity in chapter 7 of Isaiah to trust God and to turn away from his sins, if only he would have done it at that Mm -hmm. point, because at that point, he doesn't trust God And it leads them further into sin, and it it almost looks like it's a downward spiral that can't be stopped. But if at that point we could have got to Ahaz and told him, Ahaz, trust God here, he can take care of you, it would have changed the rest of Israel's history, I think.
0: Okay, so now the northern kingdom has fallen, now the southern kingdom has fallen. Uh, One last major event on the timeline that you would point out to us, what do we need to know?
3: Oh, them coming back from Babylon. That had to be an exciting time because the interesting thing is God had told them that that was going to happen. So here's these people, they've been in Babylon for some of them, like 60, you know, even more years. And at that point, Cyrus lets them go back. And they've been told that. Isaiah had uh, explained that a guy named Cyrus was going to come and let them go back to the land. And I think that would have been a truly amazing time because they would have said, Oh, look at what our God is like. Even though we're languishing here in Babylon, He can send us back home. And it's kind of amazing. Even even God is kind of proud of that in Isaiah. (laughs) It it almost sounds like He's boasting that He can do that. Oh, wow.
0: Well, we have, we have made a lot of stops in the history of Israel, but not all. And we invite you to check out that timeline for yourself as you explore a history of Israel. A link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Time went by too quickly. Thank you for being with us, Paul. Paul Wagner, who has co-written A History of Israel. Up next on The Land of the Book, Charlie Dyer and your questions. Stick around. I don't know how you feel, but for me, a person who asks lots of questions, there's little else more satisfying than finally getting an answer, and that's what this next segment is all about. Welcome back to the Land and the Book segment three. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who loves questions—your questions—and they're always welcome. That question about the Bible, prophecy, the Middle East—that question that you've been wrestling with for a while—why not send it to us and get a personalized response back from Charlie? Email us at at moody.edu. Charlie, what happens when people do send you that email?
1: Well, what I try and do is get back to them with a written answer as quickly as possible. Uh, I try 24-hour turnaround time. Can't always make it, but I sure do try. And then uh, we save those questions and try and use them on an upcoming
0: program. Well, speaking of questions, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? And why is it important? What does it mean for you?
1: Well, our friends at Life in Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, You'll also be able to learn more there about life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people.
0: All right, let's get to our questions. This one from Tom. This morning, he says, as I drove, there was a discussion on the radio program, The Land and the Book, about the names of God. And one of the references was to him being our shepherd. I thought about that and wondered if perhaps that analogy might also be applied to discipleship. I doubt literal sheep are born with an instinctive knowledge to follow a specific shepherd. Someone cannot teach by a positive example what they themselves are not doing. Maybe I've gone too far with all this, but it came to mind that I thought I would ask your opinion. Yeah. And I think actually you're making a
1: good observation, making disciples, uh, which the illustration of sheep is used for in the Bible, involves both teaching and leading by example. In fact, three passages come to mind, which I think support what you've said. Uh, the first is Philippians 4.9. You know, Paul wrote, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. I love the fact that Paul includes what they've heard from Paul and what they've seen in his life. The second passage is 2 Timothy 2. Verse 2 in that chapter is classic in terms of discipleship involving being taught and then passing that teaching on to others. But Paul also tells Timothy to join me in suffering in the very next verse. And then a few verses later, he reminds Timothy that he was uh, in chains, suffering as a prisoner for the sake of Christ. In other words, his discipleship of Timothy involved both his teaching and his presentation of his own life as an example. And the final passage I think of is Matthew 23. That's where Jesus talks about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who put themselves in the seat of Moses. And he tells the people, listen to what they're saying because they're teaching the word of God. But then he says, don't do what they do for they don't practice what they preach. Uh, and my point here is, I think he's saying that the talk and the walk need to coincide to reinforce one another. Mm-hmm. That's what makes
0: effective discipleship. Well said. Thank you, Charlie. Here's a question from Todd. He says, while I was visiting Qumran, I had a person ask me how we know that the Essenes did not back translate the Dead Sea Scrolls from Greek into Hebrew. I'm not smart enough to answer that and thought maybe you could uh, give me a good answer.
1: Yeah. And uh, what I'd say is maybe someone could say, well, that's theoretically possible, but it's actually extremely unlikely to the point of being virtually impossible. And here's why I say that. If they had been back translated from Greek, well, one would have expected to find then fragments of those earlier Greek manuscripts from which they copied, since they didn't destroy or throw away manuscripts when they uh, were worn out. They they actually buried them there. That's why there were so many thousands of pieces, and they didn't find any. Virtually everything discovered was Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, the manuscripts that were discovered date back to as early as the second century BC. Well, Alexander the Great didn't even conquer that area till the f- end of the fourth century BC, so there was really little time for the Greek language to have permeated the region to the point where Greek manuscripts would have been dominant? And finally, why would the Essenes, who focused on ritual purity, want to translate the scriptures from Greek into Hebrew when more ancient Hebrew manuscripts did exist? It seems far more likely that they were copying the texts they revered from their mother tongue to continue preserving them, and those were the ones that were discovered at Qumran.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book. It's Moody Radio's one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Segment three is devoted to questions. Yours, and that question is welcome anytime via email at at moody.edu. Interesting question here, Charlie. What did the high priest do on the Day of Atonement in the absence of the Ark of the Covenant on the Second Temple?
1: Yeah, we're, we're not told explicitly what the high priest did, but the Jewish historian Josephus provides some help. He tells us that in the Holy of Holies, there was nothing at all, meaning the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. But he also says the high priest would bring the blood into the sanctuary and sprinkle it. And what he says is toward the ceiling with his finger seven times and also on the floor. Now that suggests to me, the high priest sprinkled the blood in the Holy of Holies as if the Ark of the Covenant was present, but he never mentions the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat since of course the mercy seat wasn't there.
0: Question, would Israel rebuild the temple a third time without the Ark of the Covenant?
1: Now, I believe the Jewish people will rebuild their third temple without the ark being present. Uh, Certainly the the Temple Mount faithful, the group in Israel today, are trying to prepare for the rebuilding right now. Uh, Since the ark wasn't in the second temple, they have a precedent for doing so. I believe they also have a biblical justification for doing so. Uh, One of the 316s of the Bible, Jeremiah 316, uh, Jeremiah writes there that the ark won't be missed nor would
0: another one be made. William asks, "Could you comment on John sixteen, verse three, where Jesus said that none of the disciples had to ask him anything about where he was going?" In John thirteen thirty-six, though, that seems to be the very question that Simon Peter is asking. Your thoughts?
1: Now, this account takes place during the the night of Jesus's betrayal, and chapters thirteen and fourteen in John are in the upper room. Chapters fifteen through seventeen are on the way to Gethsemane. Now in the upper room, both Peter in chapter 13, verse 36, and Thomas in chapter 14, verse 5, do ask Jesus where he's going. Jesus never directly answers the question. Instead, he focuses on their concern that he was leaving them. And neither disciple followed up by asking specifically, you know, the location where Jesus was going. So, When we get to chapter 16 on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus now returns to the subject and provides a more detailed answer. Uh, He's returning to the Father, and it's to their advantage because he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will guide them into all truth. And then he explains about his coming death and resurrection. So in this larger context, I don't see a contradiction. I see confused disciples who are actually afraid to ask Jesus to explain his initial statement. And I think in chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus helps explain what's happening. Uh, there it says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I mean, when I said? And then it gives the, the explanation. In, in short, he's trying to explain to them about his impending death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming, but they just weren't able to grasp that truth. And as a result, even though they appeared to ask a simple question, where are you going? They really didn't understand the
0: importance of that question they were asking. Hope that's helpful, William. Here's one from Terry. Could you please tell me what the Mosaic Covenant is? Yeah, the Mosaic Covenant
1: refers to the covenant God established with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. It's the law and the regulations we find in Exodus and Leviticus, along with the additional commandments in Numbers and Deuteronomy. In Galatians 3, uh, verses 17 to 25, Paul simply refers to it as the law and he says it was introduced 430 years after the covenant God made with Abraham in the book of Genesis.
0: Mike says, I'm assuming that you saw the EU is going to buy natural gas from Israel. I cannot help but believe that this will be the hook in the jaw that will cause Russia to come against Israel. Regardless of whether I'm right, do you put the rapture before the Ezekiel war or after?
1: Well, I see Ezekiel 38 and 39, that battle of Gog and Magog at the beginning of the tribulation period probably soon after the rapture my reason for this is that god's dealing with israel resume following the rapture and with the beginning of the 70th week of daniel 9 and i see the invasion of gog and magog being part of god's work to bring about revival in israel during that time and if those events are near by the way then the issue of natural gas could play a role but right now we can't
0: say that for sure jen and john ask if jews are god's chosen people will they go to heaven even if they pass away without believing or accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior?
1: Well, I think Jesus gave us the answer to that in two places. And it's interesting, in both places, he was speaking to Jewish individuals. The first is John 3, 3, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was a Jewish religious leader, but Jesus made it clear he needed to have a spiritual rebirth to enter God's eternal kingdom. In fact, John three sixteen is part of that encounter and it stresses the need for belief and faith for someone not to perish but have eternal life. Now, the second passage is John 14, 6, where Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He made it clear that access to the Father can only come through him. So even though the Jewish people are the nation chosen by God, individual Jews still need to exercise personal faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord to have their sins forgiven and experience spiritual rebirth.
0: Listen, if you've got questions about knowing Jesus for real, for Forever. Have a conversation online at chataboutjesus.org. Charlie's Devotional is next, right here. And our thanks to you for joining us today on The Land of the Book. Maybe this is your first time listening. Well, in this segment, Charlie Dyer, our host, opens the Bible and takes us, actually takes us to a geographic location in Israel, ties it together with Scripture, and it's it's a marvelous feature in this little devotional I think you're going to really appreciate. You know, the book of Joshua is one that we normally associate it, as we ought to, with the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, but there's a lot more in that book, Charlie? Uh, there
1: is, and so much of it are place names that we skip. And today I hope to make one
0: of those names uh, jump off the page and come to life. That's coming up in today's devotional. But first, let's give a listen to this Holy Land experience, a testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and and now has this thought.
3: My name's Diane. I toured Israel with the Moody Bible Institute in uh, 2012 and just loved it. I learn so much that I constantly share with my small group or with children when I teach the Bible. It makes the Bible teaching authentic when I show pictures or tell really interesting details about the location or the culture. My favorite spots were the beautiful
2: rushing springs of Dan, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and the valley where David fought Goliath.
0: Thanks for that very personal account. You know, I remember, I think I was a senior in high school when a new pastor came to our church and uh, he began a whole brand new message series on the book of Joshua. I loved it. And Charlie, there are so many stories we could glean from the book of Joshua. Where are you going to take us
1: today? Uh, We're going to a place called Kariot, but we're going to go there by way of another place called Arad. And neither one means anything to anybody listening right now, uh, but hopefully it will by the time we're done. Okay. Take your time climbing up the stairs and watch out for lizards. Arad is an amazing place, but I don't want anyone being surprised by a lizard darting out from under those steps. And have your cameras ready. You might just see a fox pop up on one of the ancient city walls here. Arad is one of the aha sites on a trip to Israel. It helps us understand the idolatry being condemned by the prophets in the Old Testament. It illustrates the importance of controlling the roadways through the biblical Negev and it provides a good panorama of a region that separated the hill country of Judah to our north from the wilderness to our south. Look over to our north. See that flock of sheep in the distance? It's a reminder that this region is home to the Bedouin, a group that lives today much like the patriarchs did so long ago. And yet just beyond that flock, you can see the hill country of Judah starting to rise up. Just a few miles beyond those first hills were the Old Testament towns of Carmel and Maon. That's where David's men helped protect the flocks of a man named Nabal, whose very name means fool. His wife Abigail rode down to meet with David somewhere near where we're standing. David and his men were coming from the wilderness to our south to attack Nabal when Abigail rode down from those very hills to dissuade him but there's another town even closer to where we're standing than Carmel and Maon. Its ruins are actually just a little way up that road you see heading into the hills. You've probably never heard of the town before, but I don't think you'll ever forget it after our time today. The town is mentioned only once in the Old Testament and there it's known by two names, but I'm getting ahead of myself. After conquering Canaan, Joshua divided the land among the tribes of Israel. The first tribe to receive its allotment here in the land was the tribe of Judah. Caleb was given the city of Hebron in Joshua 14, and then the boundaries for the tribe of Judah were laid out in the first half of chapter 15. Finally, Joshua names the different towns within the region. The list of towns, which begins in Joshua 15:21, is a grocery list of places we can't pronounce and which we struggle to find on a map. And as a result, most people simply skip over them For the sake of time, I wanna drop down to the 14th town on the list. Here's how our Bibles identify this town in verse 25. Kiriath Hezron, that is Hatzor. Okay, I'm sure you can see why most people skip over this list of towns. Let's look at the name in a little more detail. First, the name Kiriath in English is actually the name Kiriot in Hebrew. It's the plural form of the word Kiriat, which is the word for village. And the second word, Hetzron, means surrounded by a wall or enclosure. Second, the town was given the additional name Hatzor. Uh, But don't confuse this town with the city of Hatzor already destroyed by Joshua earlier in the book. That city was north of the Sea of Galilee, while this one is in the far south of the country. Think of it this way. We have multiple towns in our country that share the same name, like 24 towns or cities named Springfield, or 15 towns named Danville, or at least three named Peoria. The name Hatzor itself also means enclosure, and seems to be just another name for the place. Evidently, this town either began as two villages that later joined together, like Buda and Pest in Hungary, which became Budapest, or else the town had a double wall around it. Kiryat Hetzron was just one of several towns in Judah, not the largest, not the most strategic, but still among the first towns singled out within the area allotted to the most powerful tribe in Judah. The town had nothing about it that would cause you to be ashamed. In fact, the Bible tells us about a rather promising man named Judah who came from the town of Kiriot. Judah stood out from his peers. Most of the crowd he ran around with came from Galilee. They were country bumpkins who spoke with a quirky accent that gave them away. Judah, on the other hand, came from a town that was a mere 36 miles from Jerusalem. He spoke with a proper accent. Judah also seemed to have been respected, even trusted, by the other members of the group. When they needed someone to keep the books and handle all the finances, Judah was the go-to guy. This man from Kiriote had the natural bearing, the marks of leadership that caused others to trust him. By now you might have put the pieces of the puzzle together. In Hebrew, the phrase man of Karyot would be translated Ish Karyot, since the word for man in Hebrew is Ish. And as names got transliterated from Hebrew into the Greek of the New Testament, Judah morphed into the name Judas. You see, Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus, was really Judah Ish Karyot. Judah, the man from Karyot, he was born and raised just over that hill in the distance. This is where Paul Harvey used to say, and now you know the rest of the story. But there's more to this story, and it's the application to us today. What difference should our understanding about Judah's background make in our lives? I would answer that in two ways. First, never judge a book by its cover. Which man was more valued the refined disciple from keriot in the territory of Judah, or the disciple who was a tough, smelly fisherman from Galilee. Judah was Ishkariot, the man from keriot while Peter was Simon Bar-Jonah, a fisherman whose own father was named after the fishiest prophet in the Old Testament. Judas had the pedigree, but Peter ultimately had the character, courage, and faith. So take care never to judge others by their appearance or their accent, but by their character and their deeds. And that leads to the second truth. What's important in your life is not where you're from, but where you're going. You didn't choose your parents or your economic or social background or your childhood. That was all beyond your control, but you can choose where you're going today and tomorrow. Judas was responsible for the choices he made, And though he started with great advantages, Judas Iscariot, Judah, the man from Keriote, ended life as a failure, and the consequences of his poor choices
0: need to be a flashing warning sign to all of us today. Hmm. Thank you, Charlie. You know, I'm sitting here listening, and I can't help but uh, think that there are other listeners affected, maybe week after week, by your devotionals. Have you ever let Charlie know? Why not email us? Let us know how the program has informed your own perspective. Our email address is at moody.edu. Maybe as you listen week after week, you've been encouraged to reach out to your Jewish or Muslim friends. We'd love to hear your story. So again, email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu kind of a long uh, email address so I'll give it to you one more time it's the land and the book at moody it's dot e d u. and do stop by the website that's the where you can learn more about the books that Charlie's written any number of things related to this program. Also, a Facebook link that'll take you right to our Facebook page full of photographs and great fun. TheLandAndTheBook.org is the website, the gateway to it all. On behalf of our teacher and host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our co-producer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger inviting you back next week for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.